God, thank you for being the good shepherd. Thank you for calling each and every one of us by name. Thank you that you opened our ears to hear your voice and to follow after you. I pray that you would teach us what a privilege this is. Let us stand humbly in the knowledge that uh, we were chosen not because of anything in us, but simply this incomprehensible love in which you elected us. While we were yet sinners, you died for us. Lord, you pray for Judy and for Darlene. We pray that you would encourage them both. We pray that you would provide obvious intermediate long-term answers for uh, them and their situation. God, I don't know what it will be, but I pray you would make it obvious, you would make it sweet, and that the, the bride of Christ, your church, would, would shine in it. I pray for Frank, Franklin, uh, that he would be encouraged in this time, that you would keep his body together for these last remaining weeks of his training in the army and that you would return him to us in one uh, well-working peace. We pray that you would encourage him spiritually, that he would find fellowship where he is at, and that he would be fed and that he could also feed others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So tonight is going to be pretty quick. Uh, it's, it's the very last paragraph of chapter 3. Uh, chapter 3 being on the decrees of God, this idea that God's will is not thwarted. It is put forth before the foundations of the, of, of the world. When, when the Bible speaks of, in the beginning, God created, there was no question that you and I would be standing here today, or sitting here, as you all are doing, and there would be a reason for it. That would all work towards God's glory, our good. That even where there are contingencies, things that we don't understand, choices that we have to make, outcomes that we don't know, those contingencies and the working out of those contingencies are established by God. And we do have free agency within those contingencies. There is no external coercion forcing us to do anything. There is no external coercion uh, as as the, the confession says, no violence is offered to the creature to, to, to make us love God or to go to 7-Eleven or to join the army. And yet, the decree of God is absolute in bringing those things to pass, ultimately. Well, the most controversial application of that is certainly towards salvation itself. And... The most controversial part of that is that God might pass over or cause to be reprobate in some way, shape, or form, ordain that some are not saved. Uh, generally, people are much more comfortable with the idea that people simply choose hell for themselves. God's never sent anybody to hell. You choose it for yourself. And you can kind of paint you know, an accurate picture with those words if you explain them more and that that nobody goes to hell, nobody is eternally punished by God uh, because God's a big meanie that didn't like them. They go there because they are sinners who act, continue to act in their sin and rejected, first off, the knowledge of God that is within them in their conscience, 
that is that is that comes forth from the remaining image of God, though it is broken, it is, it is enough information of course what is good that comes from our very minds that it's a witness against us that we knew the good we ought to do, we did not do it. And yet God is sovereign, absolutely the number of the elect that will be with God in glory, that will receive his electing grace, it is a fixed number. Otherwise, it wouldn't be by grace. It would be by some differentiation. It would be by some difference, some higher measure of righteousness in those who are saved and those who are not. And we ultimately come away with this very clear answer from the Scripture that we ain't no better than anybody else. God has made us alive together with Christ, caused us to be born again to a living hope. This should leave us in a humble position. Well, this doctrine, all this stuff we've been talking about, uh, people are very fearful of it for a number of reasons. They're fearful that, uh, interestingly enough, that people will be arrogant that they are elect. They are fearful that people will say, I'm either elect or I'm not. Therefore, it doesn't matter how I live. Ethics have no bearing on me. I can do what I want and still be saved. And if I'm not saved, there's nothing I can do about it. They're fearful that people will not evangelize. Uh, they're, they're fearful that people have a sort of fatalism about everything they do. And, and there will be no, no effort put forth in sanctification, uh, whatever the case may be. So there's, there's this idea that it could be wrongly handled. And so the, this isn't a completely unfounded fear. It's happened. So the divines have this uh, last paragraph of chapter 3. Chapter, uh, paragraph 8, it says this. The doctrine of this high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence and care that men, attending the will of God in his word, revealed in his word, and yielding obedience thereunto, may, from the certainty of their effectual vocation, effectual call, you might say, be assured of their eternal election. So shall this doctrine afford matter of praise, reverence, and admiration of God, and of humility, diligence, and abundant consolation to all that sincerely obey the gospel. So, the decree of God, God's sovereignty in all things. This idea that, as I, was it R.C. Sproul that said it, or was it? I think Kuiper said it, maybe. There's no maverick. No, no, Kuiper said something else, but, but it said mine. That's what Kuiper said, I think. The, uh, R.C. Sproul said, there's no maverick molecules. So how do people mess that up? Well, certainly hyper-Calvinism has existed. Hyper-Calvinism maybe is something unconsciously that we can fall back onto when we want to not leave our comfort zone, not speak of the gospel outside of where it is comfortable to do so. And leave evangelism to God, though God in his word, as the confession says, in his revealed word, he has told us that he is putting that on us. Evangelism is supposed to come, the word, the gospel is supposed to come to the world through us. Fatalism, uh, pride, interesting thing about pride, there are, we, we do have some problems with pride. I don't think it comes exactly from the fact that that we believe in predestination, that we believe in the, the doctrines of grace. But it, I think it comes from the fact that so many people don't. 
And yet the Bible is so clear on it. And so you do see a lot of people, and you might have heard the term a cage stage Calvinist, where somebody gets a hold of these doctrines, they didn't grow up with them, they, they, they learn about it, they fight against it for a long time, and then when it finally clicks, and they're like, this is the truth. Everybody else needs to come down the road that took them 10 years in the next 10 minutes. And if they don't get it in the next 10 minutes, they're stupid. And so it becomes the most important thing, overriding all other considerations. And these sort of people, which may be all of us who came up outside of this, this theological tradition, uh, have been, we've called cage stage Calvinists, need to put them in a cage for two or three years and let them mellow out before we release them on the world. Uh, but there's a certain pride about that. In fact, I saw a, a couple of guys, and they made videos of it. This is something else came about. People that make videos arguing theology, particularly when the other person hasn't necessarily agreed to it, is incredibly dangerous. A uh, couple of guys, one taking a video, one of them talking in a parking lot, confront uh, three, two or three young Mormon missionaries, right? And these, this guy that confronts them, I mean, he is pretty stout in his theological understanding, in his biblical knowledge. He is coming with both barrels blazing, and he, he knows his stuff. It's not like he's coming in and, and, and doesn't have a good understanding. He's not sloppy. But he is bleeding pride all over the place. There doesn't seem to be an ounce of humility. There doesn't seem to be an ounce of concern for the souls of these other people that are clearly in error. That's not where an understanding of these doctrines uh, should take us. Well, wouldn't he be out there? If he's out there talking to him, wouldn't that be a concern? I mean, to me, if he's out there, I mean, he is concerned because he is talking to him, you know? Yeah, you'd have to watch it. I mean, it, it was just—it was just kind of—it it was very arrogant. It was just very arrogant. It was more like the hype man uh, yeah. introducing uh, introducing the rapper. Then what was the motive for him to be out there? I mean, he well, <sighs> it was certainly mixed. There could be something honorable somewhere. I mean, it's not a desire to. Yeah, I mean, share the good news of God's already saving people on His own. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, at some point you have you have a judge you have a judgment call to make because there's there's such a thing as pride, there's such a thing as being prideful. There are there are many adjectives described to sin in the Bible, and we have to be able to recognize those when we see them. There was a guy in in North Carolina, Bill Legg, went to our church up there, and he was a big uh, Way of the Master fan. If you know the way the master evangelism is, it's fairly, fairly uh, confrontational. But depending on how you do it, you can do it from a. It, it itself is confrontational. If you do it confrontationally, then it can be somewhat problematic. This guy that did it, and he did it all the time, this guy bled sincerity. I don't think a single person ever came away from talking to that man thinking that Bill was an arrogant, prideful, self-righteous man. They came away thinking that this guy really believed what he believed and cared about 
the difference that that made for this person they were talking to. And, they, and he cared about the eternal state of that person. He wasn't showing off. He wasn't dominating. Uh, but there are people that are. And I specifically think of this one instance where I saw that the video of it. Go around making videos of you basically just making people look stupid. Not having a conversation. Just making them look stupid. Uh, seriously problematic. Now, I, who was it that just told us? Oh, it was Jen. Her husband has a, a, a co-worker who is a hardcore Church of Christ guy. And I didn't know this existed, <laughs> per se, or what their, their thing is. His is you have to be baptized to be saved. Like That's one of their big things, I guess. I, I, didn't, I didn't know that. And Cognitively aware of what's going on. And you have to be, when you get baptized, you have to be cognitively aware that if you don't be baptized, you can't be saved. So even if you, otherwise we're good, you're going to have to be rebaptized again, knowing that you have to be baptized to be saved. Now, I want to come back to that uh, in in, in a bit, because I think that a a problematic understanding, any kind of heresy, any kind of wrong uh, understanding, teaching, belief, Most of them are undermined or prevented if we simply get a right handling on these doctrines. So it is, a lot of people have said, you know, hey, you know, this doctrine is great stuff. It may be true. Yeah, it's in the Bible. We really don't need to talk about it so much. We don't need to talk about it at all. Well, you need to save that for more mature believers. Jesus didn't save it for believers. I mean, look in John 6. Jesus put it out there. Um, I, I don't think I can think of a particularly biblical um, instruction as far as how to use the idea in evangelism. But I know a lot of people have said uh, when they were speaking to someone who was considering accepting Christ, say, hey, you feel him coming after you right now. You know, it. If you feel him coming after you, it's because he is. <laughs> and he's going to get you. <laughs> because, because if you hear his voice and you follow him, it's because you're a sheep. But this is, this is also to be taught to new believers, old believers. And, it's, and it should bring about uh, some, some, some particularly uh, good things. Uh, rightly handled, it should not prevent evangelism. It should instead inform how you do evangelism and it should most of all give you a hope that evangelism will actually work. Is Frank here with us in the room? Yeah, he's here. Yay! You're on speaker, private. Good, how are you? It was at this point that one of our members who has been in training for the Army Reserve called his father from an undisclosed location and uh, so we went ahead and chatted with him for a good 25 minutes. Now, picking back up where we left off. So, he knew before the beginning of time that Franklin was going to call and we are going to have a little break there. Um, and then Wyatt was going to get a muffin and a fresh cup of coffee. Mm-hmm. I'm ready to go for another half hour. <laughs> All right, let's do it. So we were talking about rightly handled uh, these doctrines. They don't stifle. Go ahead. 
I was just going to say, Keith, it's funny how angry folks get about these sorts of things. Like, even just teaching scripture, like just teaching what the Bible says, you know? I was teaching through Ephesians. We were at a, at a small Baptist church. It was sort of a replant with some re reformed leaning um, <clears throat> pastors when we first moved to Texas. And I was just, they asked me to teach through Ephesians in this men's Bible study. And my goodness, people got angry at me. I, I spent the whole first, the whole first week just talking about what we, the doctrine of Scripture, that the things that Scripture says, we have to accept them. And if we don't, then we have a problem with God, not with, you know. Not the Bible's problem. Yes, you have an issue with it, right? And what do you get? And for just the same things that you said, look, evangelism, I just come back from a mission trip to rural Peru where they videotape you on the bus because the buses crash so often and people die that they want to know who's on it, right? And this guy said, well, if you believe that, then you won't ever care about missions at all. And I was like, well, brother, that's the complete opposite of the way you feel because of this. Yeah. There's hope in missions, right? Because it's not up to, I don't have to convince someone, and if they don't agree with me, it's not my fault. So... Anyway, well, the thing too, as I see, Christ labored. He labored for the sheep, not for the goats. Mm -hmm. And Paul told Timothy, I labor and endure all things for the elect's sake. Yeah. And we don't know who the elect are. And it gives us assurance that either it's working for judgment or it's working toward salvation when we share the gospel. Because only God can convert. Mm -hmm. You know, and so for me, I'm saying you go out of choice. You can rely upon all these different minds and gimmicks and sure. all kinds of stuff. I said, no. That's not it, and they all fall away. You know, the point is, if God saves, He saves. He's the author and the finisher. He starts it and He finishes it. And, and so, so many churches don't you know, forget that God adds to the church, you know? Yeah. And, yeah. Anyways, I didn't mean to interrupt further. I just wanted to emphasize your correctness on that point. And it's just as sad. And the, the idea. Who said? I think John Piper. Somebody said the the sovereignty of God doesn't um, doesn't undermine missions. It's the it's the only hope for its success. Yeah. You know, something yeah. like that. And you know, I look at a lot of people. And I think of them. I think of me. Just them and me. And I think. There's no hope. And it's also tempting to have the paralysis of I don't want to make it worse. I don't want to, I don't want to do it poorly, so I'm just going to do it at all. Um, but when God's sovereign over it, it's, it's going to, it's okay. You know, if they're elect, God's going to use it to, to their salvation. And so we can, we can just do it. Oh. All through the book of Acts, it's so evident that God is moving every piece mm. of that narrative. So he's, he's showing his sovereignty all along. And the beauty thing, the beauty of, of all of that is that Paul and Silas and when Luke joined them, they were ready to respond. Every, every uh, providential thing that came up, they 
they just were ready to go. They were ready to speak. They were ready to give the witness, give the gospel. Mm -hmm. And uh, see, that's <clears throat> well, that's one thing that uh, in my little church was that it was always based upon result. Like your church is not growing, you must not be anointed of God. You know, if you look at Noah, Noah preached for 100 years, and who, who got saved? Just his family, you know? And even that was some questions. And then you look at other people, the same thing. Christ, you know, you look at his really close followers, it was really very few. And the thing is, it's not numbers, you know, that we look for in growth, because God's the one that adds to the church. Even Calvin, I understand, had very few close people, you know? And so those churches weren't real large, but they put a lot of emphasis upon programs and different things to lure people in. And that's, I, I was thinking when we were reading from Ezekiel earlier, and the, the scattering of the sheep and kind of right now that's happening hmm. as the gimmicks are ineffective when you can't gather. You can't lure people in right now in the same way. And I mean, he's heard different things about just churches and pastors just not continuing in the in the direction they're going and there's a sadness to that if the church is to shrink but there's also a refining that's going on and the sheep may be scattered but then again the good shepherd is the one gathering us back in and it's going to be under no more false pretenses or at least less perhaps than it was before hopefully so yeah Like or I'm thinking, you know, as Frank Frank was talking to us about this Unitarian Universalist guy, people are asking him questions that we wish people would come up and ask us all the time. And Franklin's probably sitting there going, Ah you know, <laughs> this is terrible. Uh, and and you know, hopefully it, it gave him opportunity maybe to answer some of those questions in sidebar conversations, but uh, I remember my dad my dad told me about being in a Bible study, probably about the time that like Jim and Tammy Faye Baker went to jail and a bunch of it was a it was a rash of of uh, like televangelists, other people that kind of got caught in different things. And he said he was in this Bible study, and the guy said, "Just imagine how many people are, are going to hell because of these guys." And my dad said he just kind of had this like tweak in his brain, kind of like. Nope, not one. <laughs> you know, uh, this is way before he was a reform guy. It was just sort of like everything that that he knew of the scripture in that moment, God brought to his brain, and he just in his in his mind went, none, no, that's not how it's going to work. Uh, and in in John, I, I didn't even write the, the chapter. I wrote six four. It's not six four. It's ten. John ten four. Um, when he has brought out all of his own, he goes forth before him, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, 
for they do not know the voice of strangers. Uh, it's a getting getting uh, getting too wrapped up in the details and letting people drag you into controversies over this sort of minutiae stuff is problematic. And we'll uh, get to a little bit more on that uh, here in a little bit, particularly what, um, what, what Paul has to say in second Timothy 14 through 19. I think it has, it, it had what Jesus is saying here about his sheep fleeing the voice of strangers has some, has some bearing on what, what Paul says in second Timothy 14 through 19. Uh, so hope for evangelism, diligence. God is sovereign, therefore we should diligently seek to rid ourselves of the encumbrance of sin. Look at Romans chapter 6, verses 5 through 12. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Now notice, I mean, this is the book of Romans. There's election all over it. But even in what's being said here, not we have united ourselves to him, not we made a decision for him, but we have been united with him in his death. And we will be united with him in his resurrection. There's no way that we could unite ourselves to his resurrection. He does that. God does that. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we'll also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. It's it's always about him. It's always about him over and over again. For the death he died to sin once for all, with the life he lives, he lives to God. So, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Look at everything that God has done. Should this not give you great hope that you actually can follow Christ? That you actually can shed sin, whatever that sin happens to be. Um, I, all the, the numbers are pretty pretty broadly known that within the church, something like eighty percent of men look uh, admit to regularly looking at pornography. Uh, that doesn't have to be. We can rid ourselves of of the proximity to the internet or something if that's if that's the case. But but Christ has died. The death he died, he died once for all to sin. It doesn't have to be done again. And he's going to live. He's not going to die again. And so are we. We've been united to him in this. And we are dead to sin. We need not be slaves to sin any longer. The sovereignty of God gives us hope that we can be diligent uh, towards this. First, I, I, I know we, we've gone along with the phone call and all that. But I want to get some of the scripture in here. First Peter uh, 1.13 I'll read a little bit of that, but, but it's, it's really interesting the sort of the transition he makes here. Uh, 
and actually, the, I guess the point that I was trying to make really starts at the beginning. Uh, I'll, I'll share a few words in the first 13 verses, 1 to 13. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, so where is my worth? It's in Jesus Christ. To those who are elect exiles, so they're elect and they're dispersed uh, in these, this, this region of Asia Minor. And that dispersion, probably of, of, of various Jews to that area, which was disruptive to their lives and probably quite disheartening at times, that was according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. It continues on uh, that God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, uh, the inheritance that's imperishable, imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith, Faith, the instrument, that is, of our salvation, God being sovereign in it again. It just goes on and on and on. And this gives us all this reason for joy, that it may be found to result in praise and glory and honor. There's all this stuff about the sovereignty of God and Him bringing this great salvation to pass. That whole first 13 verses is the the anchor point on which he plants his flag. And then he turns, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who calls you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. So he moves from this theological indicative to this imperative, which is fueled by this overwhelming, abundant joy and praise to God because of everything that God is doing through his sovereign working. There's diligence. There's all the rest of the book is all this instruction on how to live because of this. Humility, Romans uh, 3, 23-27. This is the kind of classic justification passage there. All have sinned. Jesus Christ is a propitiation, but the point there being all have sinned. We're equal. There's no Jew and Gentile, uh, one having a leg up on the other. All have sinned. Our election is not because of anything in us. Therefore, we should be humble. We should have confidence uh, in this life. And I'll skip some of these. You got, I listed Philippians 1, 6 and Ephesians uh, 1, 1 through 14. The confidence of our salvation not depending on us. The confidence that this isn't going away. My grandmother, if I remember correctly, and my dad telling me the story, was baptized at least two or three times, rededicated at least a couple other times, was just always shaken by, by a lack of, of assurance of her faith. It affected her. What a thing to have confidence in our salvation because that salvation is of the Lord. Well, prevention of heresy, prevention of wrong teaching, belief. This particular one I was telling you about earlier, right? So you had, you had the guy that was a uh, Church of Christ guy. And, and, and he's just militantly so. And he, he's hammering home the, these, these little points that you're all wrong because of this. You're all wrong because of that. You need to, uh, you need to have this or, or you're, off, you're off base. 
And he's kind of taking some of the indicatives and some of the smaller things. And what he's doing is he's making those axiomatic. He's trying to say that salvation, the working of God from eternity past, and then in the personal work of Christ, God breaking into time and space, is hinged around how, when, where you get wet. That's ridiculous. How, how could you read the scripture and think that's the axiomatic principle of it? It's asinine. If we skip this stuff, though, these are big things. If we skip them, that's where people could be. They could fall prey to this, to this kind of thing. So engaging in people, with people like this or understanding what's going on when we engage with people like this. Uh, 2 Timothy uh, well, I, I, I got typos all over the place. Chapter 2, 14, verses 14 through 19. Go there real quick, yeah. But you know, the thing is, too, the gospel today is not, the gospel is God's work, not man's work. And the gospel you hear today is so centered around man. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's the big issue they, on the scripture. You know, it's, you've got to be baptized. You've got to do this. You've got to do that. It's all around man. You've got to receive them. Biblically, it's no, the gospel is God's work. He must do the work in you. And otherwise, you're done. Yep. And so the Church of Christ guys, like, you know, it's like you show them, look, you can't do it. You know, God has to do the work of being born again. If it doesn't happen, it doesn't matter what you do, you're lost. Mm-hmm. And, and, I, and I think, you know, when you, that's a great thing to do with uh-huh. you know, them, any, any kind of person you're just having a disagreement with, an argument with. Whenever. I, I usually get one visit from the Mormons, one visit from the Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, and then they, they blacklist me from that. They don't never come to my house again. But don't sit there and argue, them with them, argue with them over little stuff. Go to the big thing. With them, because they know the Bible good enough, let's, let's go. I would say ordinarily don't teach election from Romans 9. But you can start in Ephesians and work your way to Romans 9. But go to the big things. No, no, no. Talk to me about the big things. Don't talk to me about this little garbage that you're peddling. In, uh, in 2 Timothy ver- chapter 2, verses 14 uh, through 19. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Um, I'll just stop reading that there, but, but get, this, get this right. Get this big thing right. So much else falls in the line. Get away from the Bible. Yep. Um, and then in terms of just teaching, how do you teach this? How do you talk about it? It's funny you brought up Ephesians 1, Rob. That's the place you do it. Because, because if, uh, the sovereignty of God in salvation in particular is not just something to, to fight about. And to show how tough we are, that we can handle it, nobody else can, or that we're how smart we are, that we can somehow reconcile the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man better than they can, and we don't have to ditch scriptures because we're just better and smarter, and you ought to like us. But no, no, that's that's not. The, go to Ephesians. What does it? What does it say? He's blessing God. Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. All of these things, it gets you. To the praise of his glorious grace. To the praise of his glory. To the praise of his glory. If 
these things are not driving us to that praise, then we're probably misunderstanding maybe the in principle and certainly in, in application. Uh, yeah, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would work in us. You would drive us to our knees. You would drive us to uh, our feet in praise, our knees in repentance. I pray that you would put yourself in the proper light in our hearts. That you would be the big thing. That you would give us right perspective. I pray that we would be kind, caring, that we would be Christ-like in our presentation of Christ's gospel. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.